Welcome to the New Zealand Initiative podcast. I'm Chelsea Killick and I'm joined today by Oliver Hartwich. Welcome Oliver. Hi Chelsea. Right, you've written a column this week on Europe's monetary troubles, but I guess if we want to understand them, we'll have to go back a few years. Can you explain to me and our listeners what is going on in Europe? Well, yes, I think it depends on how much time we have. The column today, or this week in Newsroom, was all about a letter, a joint letter written by some political establishment figures in Germany complaining about the state of European monetary policy. And if you really want to understand what's gone wrong in Europe, you really have to go back about 30 years, because that is when the preparations for Europe's monetary union, the euro, started. There was the Maastricht Treaty, that was 1992, and that's when Europe came together to decide that they wanted to give up their individual national currencies and establish a supranational currency, the euro. And basically everything that's happened in European monetary policy since has gone wrong. And that is roughly where the letter writers come from. So in the column, I'm only picking up what they're complaining about today and what they recommend Europe should do. But maybe just for the benefit of listeners unfamiliar with the Eurozone and what happened, I should just explain a bit more how we got to where we are and what happened in the 1990s. Should Mm, we do that? Yes, and perhaps maybe then talk about New Zealand and what what the consequences are for us. Yes. Okay. So let's go back to the 1980s and 90s. There had been discussions for a long, long time, really going back to the early 1970s, about uniting European currencies and forming a supranational European currency, which later became the euro. Before that, of course, European nations had their own currencies. So Germany, of course, had the mark, Italy had the lira, France had the franc, and all of these currencies were operating on a national basis. So they had national central banks, And these national central banks set interest rates and monetary policy for individual national circumstances. So when one country had, say, a recession, the central bank would come in, lower interest rates, try to revive the national economy. But that didn't mean that other central banks had to do the same. And similarly, when governments actually engaged in fiscal policy, ran budget deficits, or try to revive national economies, that had implications for national currencies, but not necessarily for the neighbors. If France, for example, went through a recession prior to the euro, the French National Bank would come in, lower French interest rates, and try to revive or help the French economy. But that didn't mean that Italy or Germany or the Netherlands or any other country would have had to do the same. And so these policies, these monetary policies were relatively uncoordinated and they could respond to national circumstances. That all changed in 1992. That's when European countries came together. They signed the Treaty of Maastricht and decided to establish a European currency. The problem with that is, of course, that once you do that, you can no longer have really national monetary policies. It even limits the ability to do national fiscal policy because everything really becomes interconnected. There were some countries back in the early 1990s that actually thought they would benefit massively from this because if, especially if you were a Southern European country, before that you had to deal with really high interest rates, relatively unstable currencies, you know, the Italian lira had to devalue time and again. So they stood a lot to gain from this and they were actually trying to get into this new European currency because it looked actually quite attractive to them. 
However, there were some Central European currencies and countries that had little to gain from that because they already had relatively stable monetary circumstances, especially Germany, but also the Netherlands, Austria, and so on, Luxembourg. So for them, the main concern was to preserve what was good about their own currencies. They wanted to keep the monetary stability, they wanted to keep inflation low, and they wanted to keep an independent central bank. So the only chance to convince these central European countries to join that new Euro club was to make sure that the new European Central Bank was at least as stable as the currencies they left behind. So that was the whole setting for the Treaty of Maastricht. So the idea was to have a new European currency just as stable as, say, the Dutch Gilda or the German Mark used to be. And that's what they wrote into the treaties. So the Treaty of Maastricht, for example, said that the new European Central Bank should be removed from politics. The governor of the European Central Bank, appointed for a seven-year term, should be removed from politics. Um, there should only be one target, really, and only one target for the ECB, and that is to keep the euro stable. And apart from that, of course, there were some fiscal rules for countries. So no member of the eurozone should have debt to GDP of more than 60%, because beyond that indebtedness, um, it was seen as too dangerous for the stability of the monetary union. And of course, there were also deficit rules. So in each given year, no country should have a budget deficit larger than 3% of GDP. So with all of these rules put together, the Europeans at the time thought that the new euro currency would just be as hard as the mark was or the guilder or the Austrian shilling. And that was the idea. Okay, that was the early 1990s. What happened next? Well, after the early 1990s, Europe had a framework of rules for monetary policy and fiscal policy. And after that, nobody played by the rules. So the first country to actually violate these rules was, ironically, Germany. Right. <laughs> so Germany, having fought long and hard for very strict rules, was the first country to deviate from them. In the early 2000s, Germany went through a recession and they actually exceeded the deficit rule. So 3% of GDP, that was supposed to be the deficit. Germany went slightly above that. It wasn't tragic, but no, it set but a bad precedent. So it just demonstrated, actually, yeah, you've got some rules in the treaty, but really when push comes to shove, okay, we, we don't really have to play too hard by them. And so the European currency actually started with this problem that there were very strict rules, but nobody played by them. Another example was actually there was this political independence that the ECB was supposed to have, so far removed from national politics, except that didn't even last beyond the nomination of the first governor of the ECB, or the president, actually, what it's called. So um, there was a bit of a disagreement between the Netherlands and France at the time. The Netherlands had a candidate for the first president of the European Central Bank. The French had a candidate for the first president of the ECB. There was a compromise. Yeah, the Dutch get the first president, but he would resign halfway through the term. <laughs> I mean, that was not really what the treaty had in mind when they said, oh, we, we give this president a seven-year term because that would make the president totally independent from any kind of political interference only to have a backroom deal saying, okay, we'll, we'll appoint you, but after three and a half years you say goodbye and then you hand over to the Frenchman. That's exactly what happened. I mean, when you have rules on paper, that's all very nice, but you have to play by them. You have to fill this with life and the European Union never really did. The 
other thing that happened after the 1990s, I mean, the, the euro was introduced first as an electronic currency and afterwards with coins and paper. The southern European countries, they really realized this was great because now they had lower interest rates. I mean, that's why they joined the club, because if you were Italy or Greece previously, you would have to deal with really high interest rates. That was unpleasant. It was unpleasant for companies. It was unpleasant for finance ministers because it made it really hard to refinance and you had to pay a lot for your borrowings. Now the euro comes in, depresses interest rates across Europe and frankly, the south of Europe was celebrating a party because it was just wonderful living with this low interest rate environment. That would have been the perfect opportunity, of course, for southern European countries to get their budgets in order and to actually repay some debt because suddenly it was all a lot cheaper, except um, they still behaved as if nothing had changed and just enjoyed it and spent. And so this was a missed opportunity. And then, of course, we enter the global financial crisis. And that's when things really got nasty for Europe. Well, this is getting exciting. So what happened next? Well, it was getting really exciting, of course. Um, so the global financial crisis, of course, started... Probably not uh, exciting. Well, I mean, uh, massively exciting um, in, in European economics. And um, that's when I became a columnist on the euro crisis. And that gave me 300 columns to write. So uh, for some people, it was totally exciting. The global financial crisis started, of course, in the US. It started with a problem in the US housing market, but it quickly spread to Europe because once financial markets wake up and start reassessing risk, it was very hard to overlook the risk that had built up in Europe. So in Europe, especially in Greece at the time, that's what triggered it. They suddenly realized actually there was something a bit dodgy about Greek accounting, especially <laughs> Greek debt. And then they figured out that actually... Greece had run massive deficits, they had built up massive debts, then the Greek statistical office corrected um, their figures a few times, and the Greek prime minister said, oh, we've got a bit of a problem here, and suddenly they were cut off from international financial markets. And that was really the moment when the world finally realized how vulnerable this whole construct was. Because Greece is a tiny country. I mean, I think it was about 3% of the total Eurozone economy, so actually it shouldn't really matter too much. But it was seen as systemic. So if you let Greece go, what guarantee would there be for other European countries to remain in the Eurozone forever, especially countries that are also quite fragile, like Italy or Portugal or Spain, for time Ireland and then later Cyprus. And so the European Union started frantic activities trying to save Greece. And um, if you were there and if you were commenting on these issues at the time you remember how exciting that was one night meeting in brussels after the next engaging the international monetary fund the european central bank the european union and individual governments all trying to save greece all trying to keep greece afloat making sure that greece doesn't default on its um, debt and making sure that the greek government can somehow muddle through this crisis the idea was that European countries would give Greece some money, some loans, some haircuts on their debt perhaps, just to get them through this crisis while also getting some economic reforms in return. And this crisis, and I comment on, the, on this um, over the years on, on TV, on radio, I wrote loads of columns about this, it just kept on giving for columnists. It was never ending. But basically the deal was, We'll give you some support and you please start reforming your economy. You start collecting some taxes. That would be quite nice because it hadn't really happened. You fight corruption, all of this stuff. What the European Union did nevertheless was 
they violated all their treaty law. Because when they started all of this, the idea was that no European country should guarantee any other European country's debts. Well, that's exactly what happened, of course. And it was plain to see because all of this happened in public, really, all of these negotiations. And so the famous no bailout clause from European treaty law was violated time and again. Greece eventually was kind of stabilized. And these were dramatic times. And you probably remember the, the riots in the city of Athens. It was quite an interesting time to watch. And then the euro crisis kind of calmed down a little bit. At the time, the president of the European Central Bank, Mario Draghi, who is now prime minister of Italy, of course, he said that the European Central Bank would do whatever it takes to stabilize the euro and stabilize individual countries. And that's when speculators basically gave up and said, okay, we've got no chance against the European Central Bank. And um, for a while, it looked as if that had calmed down the euro crisis, except we're now getting into the next stage of the euro crisis. And <laughs> shall I tell you about that? <laughs> yes, that would be great. <laughs> Fantastic. So Italy had a bit of a problem so Italy had um, an economy that had not really recovered from the introduction of the euro. So Italian industrial production is basically where it was in the late 1990s. So Italy, uh, they didn't actually live well with this new monetary policy corset that the euro gave them. And they had practically no productivity increases, no industrial production output increases. The euro simply didn't work for Italy. At the same time, the country got more indebted by the year. At the same time, Italy also has a very fragile banking system. So you look at Italian banks and they're barely profitable. They're hanging in a balance. They've got a lot of bad debts on their books. So they're not quite stable. And every now and then you've got an Italian banking crisis. So the ECB comes in and tries to save that. So it tries to save the Italian banking system and it tries to save the Italian government at the same time. And I mean, there are lots of programs that the ECB runs, but they all kind of come to the same conclusion in the end. The ECB provides some extra money, fresh central bank money, and passes it on to the Italian banking system. Italian banking system gets this money free of charge, doesn't have to pay interest for that, and then takes this money to buy Italian government debt. Well, this is uh, denominated, um, of course, to yield maybe one or 2% interest. So Italian um, commercial banks get free money by paper of the Italian government that pays about 2%, pocket the difference, and that means that the banks are suddenly profitable, mm -hmm. that the Italian government stays afloat, and the ECB basically takes a hit. And in that way, basically for years, the ECB has kept Italy alive. They've kept Italy alive both for the Italian banking system and for the Italian government. In the meantime, of course, um, Italian government debt didn't get less, so they didn't repay the debt. The Italian government didn't have enough pressure to really reform the Italian economy, because why would they? Because there's free money, it kind of bails you out all the time. And so countries like Italy actually became dependent, highly dependent on the continuous flow of new, fresh central bank money. Again, this is in violation of the treaties. So the treaty said, actually, no, the, the role of the central bank is not to save the euro, whatever it takes. The role of the European central bank is to keep prices stable. But now, of course, the European central bank was massively engaged in keeping the Italian banking system alive, keeping the Italian government alive, having just saved Greece. So basically, the European central bank moved further and further away from its original mandate. 
and European treaty law, the kind of stuff that was negotiated prior to the Maastricht Treaty in 1992 got basically sidelined. So that was the position before COVID. COVID actually just accelerated everything. So now, of course, we had a massive economic crisis in Europe and the European Central Bank did what central banks did around the world. So it didn't really matter whether it was the Federal Reserve in the US or the RBA in Australia or the RBNZ here, all central banks came to the rescue of their economies. I mean, in New Zealand, we are talking about it almost daily. We've got a hundred billion dollars provided by the Reserve Bank of New Zealand. Well, the ECB is doing exactly the same. So the ECB has made it possible for Europe to kind of navigate through the crisis by providing even more central government cash. All of this cash is now flowing through the European economy. It's pushing up European stock markets. It's pushing up European um, property prices, something that is familiar to us, of course. And New Zealand is exactly the same. And so we see an increasingly politicized European Central Bank that is fulfilling all sorts of different roles for which it never really had a mandate in the first place. And on top of that, it's becoming political because it's also actually engaging in policy areas for which it was never responsible. Take climate change. So European Central Bank now thinks it has a mandate to support some green deal in Europe. So it buys some bonds to support sustainable energy projects and so on. Now, again, this is nice policy if you want it, but it's not a policy for a central bank, but the European Central Bank engages in it regardless. Mm. You've got all of these things coming together. You have a central bank that's politicized. You've got a central bank engaged in saving banks and countries. You have a European commission, and that's the government of the European Union, that is also now engaged in policies that were never really foreseen. So. The European Union, if you don't know, they don't really operate like a normal national government, so they can't take on debt usually. So they are financed entirely, or they used to be financed entirely, I should say, by the money they get straight from member state governments. Now, this is the first time actually that the European Union is taking on debt of its own. So about 750 billion euros, um, the European Commission now goes to the capital markets to raise this money and distribute it again to national governments and every single member of the EU, all 27 remaining members of the EU after Britain's departure, they guarantee jointly for this debt. Gosh. And so you have a massive redistribution of money. And it's basically always the same story. It's the stable, large economies of Central Europe, especially Germany, of course, guaranteeing for the spending of the European Union, also effectively and implicitly guaranteeing for the decisions of the European Central Bank. And none of this is, of course, what they had in mind in the 1990s. So this is the complete opposite of what they Wrong. constructed. Right. So, and here we come to my column. <laughs> right. This was the prehistory of my column. Yes. So my column actually talks about um, a letter that was published last week in a German broadsheet newspaper, Süddeutsche Zeitung, it's published in Munich. And it was a very interesting letter, a very unusual letter. I mean, there are many people, many economists actually pointing out that the European treaties were never meant to work that way. And it's, I mean, it's pretty obvious, actually, that they weren't, because we're doing the complete opposite of what they had in mind in the 1990s. So um, it's not novel to complain about this state of affairs. What was novel about the letter in Süddeutsche Zeitung was um, the signatories of that letter. So you have a cross-section of the German political and business establishment. You have um, Per Steinbrück, who was a former minister of finance in the federal government. 
under Angela Merkel and her grand coalition. You have Edmund Stoiber, long-time prime minister or minister-president of Bavaria and um, once candidate of the Conservatives for the Chancellery before Angela Merkel. You have Günther Oettinger, former vice president of the European Commission even. You have a former vice president of the Bundesbank. You have Germany's most prominent economist, Hans-Werner Sinn. And you have the chairs of a number of large German companies, including Linde and Deutsche Post and Deutsche Bank. So real corporate heavyweights. They're all coming together and write this letter now, an open public letter in Süddeutsche Zeitung. And to make it even better, they say that they only published this letter after months of consultation in which they talked, among others, to Wolfgang Schäuble, finance minister and now president of the Bundestag, so the parliament, and Jens Weidmann, president of the Bundesbank. So it doesn't get much more establishment than this. So here you have a cross-party section of German politicians from left to right, from business to politics to economics, talking to central bankers, past and present, and then they write a letter. And what do they say? They say, the current system we have is totally unsustainable. Yes, we give it to the European Union and the European Central Bank that they have bailed out quite successfully uh, south of Europe. They don't name countries, but everybody knows who they're talking about. And they say, okay, this worked. So we kept the euro alive, great success, but it's actually become a little bit too dangerous because the side effects now actually outweigh the benefits. And the side effects, they say, well, they're obvious. We have built up so much cash now in this system and so much central bank money that inflation is almost inevitable. And we can see it already. It's happening in stock markets. It's happening in the housing market. It's just a matter of time until we see it in consumer prices too. So that much is obvious. They also say what it has actually achieved all of this intervention is we have created zombie economies and zombie companies. What they mean is you have entire companies only surviving now because money doesn't cost anything. There's no interest. So companies that would have previously gone under and made way, made room for new companies to take over, they just survive because yeah. it's cheap. The same goes for countries. Not that anyone wants countries to go under, but yeah. you want com countries to reform. So if a country enters trouble, fiscal trouble, typically what happens is that some growth-enhancing reforms come about. Well, not only longer. Well, why would you go into the territory of economic reform? You know, it's painful, it's a lot of trouble. You get into all sorts of trouble with the, with the voters especially when you can get free money from the central bank and when you can easily refinance. And so in that way, the authors of that letter argue that it's actually created some kind of insurance mentality. So whenever there's any kind of economic trouble in the economy, well, we'll just call on the government to bail us out because um, you can afford it. You just go basically to the central bank and get some more cash and everything is fine. And so what they say is, this whole system where the central bank provides you with endless amounts of new central bank money has now created a situation where the economy becomes ossified, fossilized, zombified, whatever you want to call it, where you've got governments that no longer have to undertake any reforms and where everything becomes political. And so what they say is we should really return to roughly the status quo of the treaty. And the treaties actually prescribed that you know, countries are responsible for their own budgets and no country should bail out any other country. You should not bank on the European Central Bank either to bail you out if you're getting into trouble. 
So we should actually have a central bank that does its role that we initially assigned to it, namely to keep the euro stable and not to bail out the Italian banking system, not to provide cash to Greece, really just to do its job and not to talk about climate change either, by the way. So basically what these experts in the Süddeutsche Zeitung, the letter writers, tell us is to go back to European treaty law, to have um, countries doing responsible fiscal policy, to have a European central bank focused just on price stability, and to do exactly what they agreed to in 1992 when they signed the Maastricht Treaty. Just a question then, Oliver. If the central bank now are in this much trouble or in this much debt, how do they fix that? (laughs) Well, that is a very good question, and there is no real answer to that question. The problem is, of course, the longer you keep this policy going, the more difficult it will be to pull out of it. Because Europe has been in this position now for about a decade. So countries and companies have become used to a zero interest environment. And they've actually adjusted their debt levels accordingly. So look at Italy. After COVID-19, Italy's debt to GDP stands at about 155% of GDP. So it's well above the 60% prescribed in the treaty. So Italy is heavily indebted, over indebted, which is fine as long as Italy doesn't have to pay much interest. Once Italy starts paying interest again, as they used to, that would be a bit of a problem for Italy. So the European Central Bank is really in a catch-22 situation. They have to get out of this policy because this policy doesn't deliver in the long run. The longer you keep it going, the harder it will be to ever wind it back. But if they're trying to pull out of it, all hell will break loose because you will bankrupt European governments, you will bankrupt European companies, zombie companies will disappear. You will probably trigger a massive problem for the European banking system you might actually see a banking crisis or a bank run, and we know how that typically ends. So the European Central Bank now has the choice between two evils. They can keep the situation going for a bit longer, and as long as there is political will, you can keep it alive, or you can pull out now and trigger a massive economic crisis. But the alternative to triggering this economic crisis is to risk an even bigger crisis in a few years' time. But what does that mean then? With this going on in Europe for New Zealand, so let's bring it home. What? Well, Europe is, is there something we can learn from this? Absolutely, yes. Mm. Um, I think the first lesson I would learn from the European experience is never to have a monetary union with anyone else. <laughs> I mean, um, I mean, this sounds a bit naff now, but I mean, there, there have been discussions in the past about maybe a trans-Tasman dollar mm, yes. with um, Australia. I've always joked that um, if you ever consider a trans-Tasman monetary union, you should include Papua New Guinea because every monetary union deserves its Greece. <laughs> but, but no, seriously, you would never want to consider that because I think countries are generally better off if they've got their own currency because also the policy mistakes of one country are limited to that country. Otherwise, you've got spillover effects and you're free riding on other members of a monetary union. I think that's too dangerous. It is really difficult to design proper monetary unions. And typically in history, if you go back through all the examples, they fail after a while. You go back into the 19th century, the Latin monetary union, exactly the same as the euro. So these monetary unions never work. So that's the first lesson. The second lesson is actually, if you look at where Europe stands today, they've got Zero interest rates, sometimes negative interest rates in the commercial sector. So you put your money in a bank account and you get less back in a year's time. Um, It is really hard to unwind this. People get used to negative interest rates. 
And companies get used to it and countries get used to it. So we have only been in this position now for a bit more than a year. And we've had this uh, quantitative easing program where our Reserve Bank of New Zealand prints $100 billion, which is a massive amount of money, of course. It's about $20,000 for every person in New Zealand. It's, it's quite large by international standards. But the danger is you become used to it. It is so easy for a minister of finance to just live under these circumstances because you basically don't pay for your borrowing anymore. And it reduces the discipline that politicians especially need to actually run balanced budgets. When money is worthless, when it doesn't cost anything to borrow, the temptation is there to just build another bridge. It doesn't matter whether it pays or whether it's a good cost-benefit analysis. The money doesn't cost anything. Let's go for it. Europe's been there, and we see what it does. It completely perverts the economy over time. And the next problem is, of course, if you keep this going, you also zombify the economy. You will not clear out companies that should really go and make room for other companies. You will keep them artificially alive. And as we know from Josef Schumpeter, the great Austrian economist, there is a process that's happening typically in a market economy of creative destruction. So some companies go under, some other companies are formed. If you like, it's a bit like biology. You know, there are births of companies and there are deaths of companies but you cannot keep them all on life support forever. No. And that's what negative or interest rates do. One door closes, another opens. Exactly. So I think the Europeans are learning the very hard way now, actually, how difficult it is to deal with zombie companies. Something, by the way, that we could also observe in Japan now for the past 30 years, because they've been there before Europe, even and they're de dealing with that today, and it's quite difficult. So from a New Zealand perspective, I think there are a few policy lessons we can learn about sustainable monetary and fiscal policy. The other thing I think we need to do is we need to just pay attention to what's happening in Europe because should Europe at one stage blow up, which I think it will, I just can't tell you when, because for that you don't need to talk to an economist, you need to talk to maybe an astrologer <laughs> or maybe a politician because it's all a political question. It's a question of how long you've got political will to keep this going and keep it alive. But eventually I think it will blow up and when it blows up it will be ugly. You probably remember how it was when we talked about Greece in the um, early years of um, this century and how dangerous that seemed. Well, Greece is a tiny country. Just imagine what would happen if we saw some wobbles in Italy or France. That would be an entirely different ballgame. And I think it would be quite dangerous for the world economy because Europe, I mean, it is um, not as important as it used to be a few decades ago, but it's still a large economy, it's a large chunk of the world economy, and if we have troubles, monetary troubles in Europe, we'll definitely feel them here. Well, thank you, Oliver. Who would have thought monetary policy would be that interesting? But thank you for your time, and uh, if anybody wants to read uh, Oliver's article, it is on our website, on www.nzinitiative.org.nz. Thank you, Chelsea.